There has never been a more important time to make a difference and create better lives. I'm Andrew Liveris, former chairman and chief executive officer of the Dow Chemical Company and the former executive chairman of Dow DuPont. In this podcast series, you will hear from one of our Liveris Academy scholars interviewing a leader they identified as being important to them. What differentiates leaders whose followers respond out of belief in your goal versus just because of rules? How do you relate to those you lead while enacting positive change during trying times? Leading people is different to just leading a country or business. I'm Victoria Barnes, a chemical engineering student at the University of Queensland and a scholar of the Andrew N. Liveris Academy for Innovation and Leadership. In my episodes, I will be interviewing several individuals who I believe exhibit approachable leadership and are able to bring their followers along with them towards a common goal. In this episode, I will be talking with Ms. Sandy Vaughn, who's been the independent member for NUSA since 2017. I first met Sandy in April 2018, when she came to my high school to listen to what issues and ideas were important to young people. I remember from that meeting, she was so approachable, and myself and I'm sure other students present felt that they were being listened to and heard. Welcome, Sandy, and thank you so much for joining me today. Yeah, good morning, Victoria. What a beautiful day. It is, isn't it? We're lucky to be in Noosa. We certainly are. We live in the best place in the whole wide world. Oh, I totally agree. So I'm curious, when did you first step into your current role? Um, So I mentioned it was 2017. Yes. How did you get there, and what is your greatest achievement in this role so far? How did I get there? I think the journey probably started about 30 years ago when I was in the Northern Territory, and I saw the impacts to people um, by decision-making or isolated or removed decision-making from actually on the ground what was happening. And I didn't say I'm going to be a politician, but it started making me aware that decisions that are made by someone sitting in an office or developing policy without spending time with those that are impacted can lead to some catastrophic outcomes. So over the years, I've always worked and volunteered in different roles as I've done my day job. But over the years, as I saw more and more of how decisions really do impact and poor decisions that lack perspective about those that the decisions are being made for. So I eventually thought, well, the best way to find out why or how the system works, and I became a counsellor in the Noosa Shire uh, elections, I think that was in 2013, after the, after the de-amalgamation, and that was a short term, it was only two years. I ran for the mayoralty, just got puked, uh, went back into the uh, private sector and then ran for state and was successful, which is one of the greatest honours you can ever have. Yeah, definitely. It's been amazing to see what you've done in this so far, just in the past three years. Oh, it's been, I think, liberating being able to demonstrate what can be achieved without utilising the old methodologies of drag others down or make promises you can't keep. I mean, some when I say promises, I look at commitment, the, the commitment you make to your community about what you're going to work on on their behalf and work to achieve. And I get so excited when I look at or exhausted. I, I remember I was very na- naive when I had my oil plates on. I had this huge long list of, you know, everything that 
I really wanted to tackle and now I look at it and it's amazing what has been achieved and I've done so uniting, not denigrating, but by uniting and also helping everyone to see what it takes for good advocacy and it moves much more beyond hopping on a soapbox or who screams loudest. It's about building the case and putting it forward. That's a lot of hard work. It is, I'm sure. You mentioned earlier about your volunteering. Mm -hmm. uh, you're well known in the Noosa community for your volunteering. How has that affected how you make decisions? I think when you spend time with your, your community at a level that's beyond being paid for that role, when you work alongside, and, and this community, we have nearly 400 organisations that all are composed of volunteers and what they deliver to the community, whether that's in the realms of sport and recreation, pastimes, endeavours, like at the moment Burgess Creek, we've for years been um, wanting to get that sorted and that's been made possible by finally, um, after going through the whole processes with Unity Water and getting funding and getting the master plan done, but ultimately it's all the volunteers that get in there and do it. So what you get is a grassroots aspect of every endeavour you're involved in and that's really invaluable for when you are making decisions that are going to impact those volunteers, whether it's to do with their funding or a, a strategy or a master plan and to accommodate how does this help them because when you're helping them because they are helping us. So it, it's very powerful. It's amazing when you can bring together a whole community of people who work towards one same goal. Oh, there's nothing more powerful and no. I think we saw that going back in the when um, Noosa was amalgamated into a larger council and then worked so hard to to become de-amalgamated to take back its own identity and to become independent again very important <laughs> okay so I'm curious what do you enjoy most and least about your current role as the member of parliament okay. most I have an absolute love of people so in my role I get to work with and strive with and cry with at times the most incredible people and diversity of ages, interests, opinions and, and not all agree and I think that was, I, I was really humbled on Saturday to see when Team Noosa came together as coming up to the elections and to see in amongst all those people are people that have had differences over the years but they have come together in a common goal. And I think when I see that, that you can put aside things for a moment in a common cause, and you can go back afterwards and then go back to debating. But I think that's really key for us to be able to understand everyone has a different perception. And when you can actually be okay with that, you don't get angry because someone's not agreeing with you. And, and that a tool that, as we go forward, is imperative, not only in our communities, but in, in government and in chamber. And I think that quality about you really comes out in the way that you relate to others and is very easily seen by those around you. Mm, I love people. And you said, what's the worst about yes, my I'm curious, what's the worst? <laughs> I think coming from the private and the not-for-profit not -for sector, it's always challenging 
when you are dealing with government and departments. I mean, there's fabulous people, but we've got aged systems. And when I talk about systems, I'm talking about those underpinning framework that goes back, you know, 200 years old. And for every level something, and, and some of the most simplest of things have to go through so many layers that by the time it becomes a reality, it's already dated or it no longer will serve as well. The COVID emergency was a, a good example of how we can operate and should always operate and the speed at which we we have to because we're we're in a different era. 200 years ago, we didn't have the speed or volume of information coming through every minute. So time has changed and we no longer have, and I remember when I was on council, that a planning scheme was valid. They, they would develop it and it'd take five years to develop and then 10 years before the next one was due to be implemented. But with such a changing world, 10 years is a long time. And taking five years to develop something, in that five years, there's been so many changes. So it can be aged before it's released even. So a lot for us to accommodate and encompass and consider while we are building frameworks and when we're building strategies to make sure it doesn't sit on the shelf and that it is relevant and current is understanding that we have changes coming through by the moment. And when that first outset of COVID happened, did you tend to make your decisions based on your gut or did you prefer to wait for more solid information to come out? What was kind of your strategy for approaching decisions during this crisis period? I think there's a combination. The first thing in any emergency, similar to our fires, is to, you know, I consider this community my family. So you would do exactly as you do for your family. You secure them and you make sure that they are safe and whatever that takes. I always tend to, when there is an emergency, to accommodate for the worst so that you, there's, you're not unprepared. And we were very prepared. And from the start, even down to where we set up a business roundtable with all the representatives from member groups, and every Friday would sit, and they you know, represented hundreds and hundreds of businesses to make sure that we understood exactly what was happening on the ground, what their concerns were, what they needed, so they could not only get through that time, but come out the other side ready for the recovery stage. So we call it the survive, strive and thrive. So we're now heading into the thrive period. And NUSA has done so well, I think, probably based on you guys' strategy plan. The greatest efforts were by everyone in the community and what they did when we sent the call out, that what, what we needed help with, whether it was uh, their taking responsibility and just making sure they did their 1.5 and their, their you know, hand washing and, you know, and, and it was tough. It was, it was really hard because we're not, we're not used to being told, and I'm a, a massive hugger and a toucher, Same. <laughs> and it was the hardest thing I've ever done in terms of, especially when everyone was lined up across the road at Centrelink, and every day I would walk that line, and it was heartbreaking because I couldn't go and just hug them to transfer that energy. It's one thing to say, we are going to make sure you're okay, but it doesn't feel the same if you can't transfer that care and love through a hug. 
So I've I've warned everyone, once they allow hugging again, we're going to have the biggest group hug and everyone better watch out. Sounds great. <laughs> and how do you still maintain your ability to be a relational leader and to relate well to others while still keeping that physical distance, not being able to use physical touch to kind of relate that sincerity? I think we've developed communication is so important and when you can't touch someone you spend more time in your facial expressions words different means um, you know, even in my facebook post you know i'll put you know high five and virtual hug and and try to send across similar messages that you normally would physically i know that sounds a bit strange but I have noticed even when somebody was taking photos of me one day and I was giving a talk and obviously my facial expressions have become more amplified in trying to get the message across so I'll probably end up with a lot more wrinkles as a result because I'm skewing my face around in all different ways but yeah I think it's communications and trying to embed what your intent is when you can't touch or hug which sends clear messages this time where we've had to use Zoom and all other manners to meet and hold forums, that is difficult when you can't see each other, to see the reaction because body language, eye movements actually are part of the communications. So yes, so that was hard, especially when our good old um, telecommunications hasn't held up that well during this time and many, many meetings we've had where People are dropping in and out or saying, we can't hear you. And yeah, But at least everyone's kept a good sense of humour. And then finally to finish up, what is one piece of advice that you were given that has greatly influenced your life? And who is another leader that you look up to? I'm trying to think about a piece of information or something somebody said. Because this, over the years you meet so many incredible people and they're, they're bits of information. But... I think more than anything, it wasn't what somebody said, it was the experience I had in Indigenous communities. To understand that the perception I have is we all have very different perceptions. So how we're seeing something is vastly different how it's making us feel. And until you can really acknowledge that what you know or, or where you're coming from is from your perspective. It, it's not everyone's. And to have that ability to step outside yourself into someone else's shoes is, for me, that learning that how I see things doesn't mean it's right. And so it gives you the ability to encompass a lot of different beliefs and try to bring that into a common goal in a way that is acceptable in that belief structure. I think having a diverse community oh, is so I have so an important. amazing diverse community, but that's where you get the greatest discussions, yeah. the, the best outcomes through those discussions, and, and some of them do get very energetic <laughs> because how we each view the world or what we believe needs to happen or how it's to happen or, or in what time frame is, is all relative to each person's background, knowledge, education, their environment growing up. So that empathy is, is part of the key in really good debate and discussions and how we resolve. Definitely. And is there one certain layer in the past that you've looked up to? Well, 
Isn't that terrible? Not particularly. <laughs> um, not for any reason, and I'm not being judgmental, but I was never a person to look at and say, oh, my goodness, I, I want to be like that. I mean, there's people everywhere, every day and throughout my life that I've met people, individuals, that I have seen what they do and hope to aspire to be the qualities they have. But in leaders, I... It was interesting because I never really watch. It's more about getting on and doing and also inspiring others to do and to take us forward. But when I, uh, I think it was something that came across one day and it was the New Zealand Prime Minister and she was just doing a Facebook update and it was really cool. She was in her pyjamas, she was at home and she just said, you know, sorry for the lack of makeup and that, but I wanted to give you in the emergency. And I thought that was invaluable in terms of taking this image that my my interns and my youth ambassadors say that not prevents, it doesn't encourage our youth to want to be a representative or a politician because they see that the image is is bad of politicians, their behaviour, when I say their, um, our behaviour, uh, how we do things, the whole political landscape and how it operates. And I think it's very refreshing when we have leaders that are prepared to be very transparent about how they make their decisions, who they are, but also the communications, and it's it's done in a way that's not an official, here is what's happening, but as human to human. Yes, so I thought that was really cool. So, yes, I think more leaders that have that ability to communicate and share how hard some of the decisions are. They're really yeah. hard, and because we're given all the different aspects and the research and the realities, what sometimes seems easy to fix isn't quite so. And for everything we do, there is a chain reaction, domino effect. And I think we've seen that in the simplicity of our journey to renewables. And I sit on my committee deals with state development and one of the big projects is a wind farm to the, the north of us. And of course, what was brought up was the impacts wind farms have. So renewables have their impacts and we've got to accommodate those and how we deal with, for example, in 20 years, the blades will need to be shipped off and something will need to be done with those. At the moment, all our solar panels, as they're starting to need replacing and taking off roofs, how that you know how that is dealt with, that it doesn't end up in the landfill, that it is repurposed in some way, and that's key. And that's you know that's my my little quirk that uh, those that know me think I am um, I repurpose everything, and it comes from a childhood of, of great hardship where every single item in some way was reused. Piece of paper or a tin and as I've grown up that same everything I don't like to see anything go to the tip or into the landfill so I'll find somehow to reuse it. 
That's an important concept as well, and an important, I think, behavior to adopt is because we only have limited resources. We do. And, yeah, if we keep throwing everything in the tip, eventually we're not going to have anything left. So mm. so that, that, that simplicity of not to waste, by not wasting, we actually, it, it puts more money into the economy to do other things. And because we're not having to figure out how to dispose of it. So that's some of the considerations while we're actually looking at things like renewables. It's okay. Yes. Now, what do we do with that 20 years or 40 years down the track? Yeah. So never as simple, but the time, I think at the moment, we've got 160 clean energy projects in the pipeline and it's very slow. And I was talking to some of our youth that were protesting here the other day. And we would like it to be quicker, but how the system is set up, and it was set up over the years, over many years, to accommodate whether it's the environmental assessments it has to go through, there is these multiples, and they were set up as safeguards, but in a way when you have a project that then instead of taking five years to develop takes 10, the costs keep going up and up, and the end product becomes more expensive. So, yeah, the decision-making is never simple. I wish it was just to go, yes, let's do that. But we have to consider not only the future impacts but the ramifications to others. And power is one thing that for our most vulnerable. And when you look at our vulnerable, you're looking at self-funded retirees, our, yeah, other retirees, our young families, our, our key industry workers here in Noosa who are in hospitality, aged care, yeah, they cannot afford to suddenly transition where it's going to cost much more in any way. So that's another consideration yeah. we have to do. Arrangements so that people are brought along and not left behind. Uh, brought along, but also that they aren't put under severe financial duress through our decisions. Even though we want to get somewhere really quick, it's how do you do it without there being a fallout that may be an unintended consequence. Okay, Sandy, so just to finish up, yes. I've got three very quick, fun questions Ooh. to ask you. So, first of all, dog or cat person? Oh, all. All and sundry. Any, anything that's furry feathered, I love the lot. <laughs> can't pick Sorry, one I, I, I can't because I do. Yeah. I, I love, yeah, everything. Oh, so where is your favourite place to go in New South? Everywhere. I do, I do. I am... My perfect day would be just to have a day where I can turn off the phone, don't have to do anything, and I can go and put my feet in the sand mm -hmm. somewhere and just squish them around and fit in the water and just look at it, to head up into the hills and just take in how stunningly beautiful Lisa is very nice to have red mountains and beaches. And it's got the coolest little secretive spots that I'm not going to tell you about because then you'll tell others. <laughs> and it won't be a secret okay, anymore. You just have to tell me afterwards. <laughs> yeah. Okay, what is one interesting fact about yourself that isn't commonly known? I don't know. I'm, pre I'm pretty open with things. Everyone knows that I'm not a shopper. I don't like shopping at all. Yes, I, I repurpose everything. I'll run into the local op shop when I'm desperate when the girls say, uh, isn't it time you got some new shirts? So I'll charge in there because I really love all the volleys in there. Lisa does have some pretty great op shops. Oh, I know just, whenever I come home, it's, that's where I go to. It's just a, a, a great culture, a, a, probably a quirky bit. I, as a child, I was always in trouble and always would head off. I loved exploring 
and I had no filter or understanding of, well, you shouldn't try to head out, you know, a couple of miles because you want to see something and you're four years old or... Maybe not the best idea. No, but I've got a lot of scars from um, climbing around, uh, exploring under buildings and my favourite one was, well, my very unfavourite one, was falling underneath a jetty and the oyster. You know, the oysters that are there, and I had one embedded right into my kneecap. So, yeah. Lots of battle scars. Lots of battle scars, absolutely. Sounds like a good childhood. (laughs) (laughs) Well, thank you so much for joining me today, Sandy. Oh, thank you, Victoria. Have an awesome day. I mean, go and enjoy it. Thank you. Hello.